We know in this room right now that as we gather that some of you are going through things in life that others know and others don't know. know, Some are going through relationship issues and all kinds of brokenness in their own families and their homes. I'm going to pray today especially for for Dave Tabler as he continues to recover and as he's just had a really rough season. I'm going to pray for Dave and Ruth Ann. I'm going to pray for Betty Nail. Um, Many of you may not know Betty Nail. Reverend Bill and Betty are part of our church, but uh, he is speaking at another church most Sundays, and so we want to pray for them. She had a massive stroke last week. I want to continue to pray for them. But will you join with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, we come before you this morning thankful for the fact that you love us. In these moments, we come together and we believe somehow in Christ alone we find hope. That you love us where we are in spite of who we are so often. But you call us to be kind of your unique people in the world, a people who are defined by love and hope and joy and peace. Will you forgive us those moments when our life is not a reflection of that? Will you help us to live into the model that you've invited us into, to know your son in such a way that it changes our very hearts and our minds and our lives? We pray today especially for Dave and Betty and Bill and their families. We pray today, especially for those who find themselves suffering and hurting and wounded. We pray today that we will begin to embrace more and more that you call us to be your unique people. And so we pray that even this next Sunday, as we recognize we're called to be the church, not just the fifth Sunday of a month, but, but every day. The church is never a place that we go. It is always a people that we are. Help us to embrace that and to live that out and to know that that that's what your scripture tells us. So Father, we pray this morning you would help us in these moments to hear from you, that you would speak in such a way that our hearts would truly be changed. As we're in this series wrestling with some of the problems that keep us from believing in you or following you, may we come to better places of understanding. May we find ourselves wrestling through things in a way that bring clarity and hope. And maybe even the places where we have to live with just sheer faith in the midst of tension. May we find our faith in you. So Father, we pray that you would help us to recognize that you are for us, for our futures, for our families, for this community. Help us to be the kind of people who are for others as well. And so may you speak this morning in a way that we can hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to mention just a couple things real quick this morning before we kind of look at um, some stuff together. I want to mention that if you have not signed up for a small group or you've never been a part of one, I would really encourage you to think about joining one today and being a part. And um, I think it's worthwhile for your life. And so if nothing else, just to meet people that you don't already know or maybe get to know people you already know a little bit better. So we hope you'll sign up and be a part of that. I I can't say enough good about what those can look like in our lives. And finally, I want to mention today, if you have wanted to think about maybe joining the church and you didn't sign up and you want to stay for the membership class following the service, uh, make sure to tell me so we have enough food for you. But uh, we'd love to have you stay after the service if you're able. And um, we'll be here to about an hour and a half or so to two hours and then you'll be out of here on your way. But membership class is right after the service today. Um, have you ever heard a story that was so unbelievable that you couldn't really believe like, or you found out the story was so unbelievable that eventually it actually was true. Or maybe you heard a story that was so unbelievable it really was unbelievable because it wasn't true. 
Right? We've all heard stories, or maybe you're like me, I really like compelling stories. Stories that grip me, stories that move me, stories that usually have a winner and a loser, an antagonist and a protagonist. Stories that, that are so vivid and real, you feel like you're present there in the middle of them. In fact, we'll find fictional stories that are written so well that you struggle to believe they're fiction. Have you ever read a story like that? I mean, you read it and you just... You, you separate yourself from it and you go, I, I felt like it was too real to be fake, right? In fact, there was a book that came out years ago. It was a book that, that was so real to so many people. It got the author on the cover of magazines and on television shows. And it was a bestseller. In fact, it was such a compelling story that even biblical scholars began to talk about this book. Now, maybe you know what this book is, maybe you don't. There's a book that came out years ago called The Da Vinci Code. And this book is fascinating because it, it was sold in fiction sections of stores, but the premise of the book was kind of simple. It was that Jesus wasn't divine, and the church has spent the last two millennium trying to hide that fact. Now, I have to be honest with you. I mean, it, it, as it kept being talked about more and more, um, I noticed that as even people began to respond to this, that sometimes we forgot it was sold in the fiction section of stores. But the question that the Da Vinci Code brought about was this, is the Bible accurate or reliable or trustworthy or true? See, what the book spoke to was this question we kind of have about the validity of the scriptures themselves. Like, do we actually value them? Are they actually good? In fact, the book came out about the time I was in graduate school, and, and everybody was reading it or talking about it, and so I picked it up, and I was reading like hundreds of pages a week of like really deep stuff, some of which I remember, some of which I don't. Um, but I was reading all this stuff, and I picked up this book on a random like Tuesday or Wednesday during the week, and I couldn't put it down. It was a really good book, a fiction, right? It was a compelling story. It gripped me. It held me captive. I, I even finished it and I go, okay, I get why people are asking questions about the Bible itself. I understand why they're wondering if it's true or not true. But this is a reality, not just because someone wrote a fiction book over a decade ago. The reality is people have always wrestled with whether or not the Bible is true. For the last 2,000 years. I really, if you can talk about the, the Old Testament scriptures longer than that. This series, we've been talking about the problem of God. We've been borrowing from Mark Clark and C.S. Lewis and Timothy Keller and others as they, they look at some of the biggest questions that many of us have about faith or the things that prevent us from being a part of faith in some kind of way. The first week we looked at faith and science and we wrestled with the idea that, that maybe faith and science are really two sides of the same coin, both seeking truth. They're not enemies of one another. That's just a myth. Last week we talked about the idea that does God even exist? Because if God doesn't exist, then this week about the Bible really is worth, worthless. If there is no God, then, then it doesn't matter if the Bible is true or not true because there's no God. But this week we're talking about the idea of like how do we wrestle with the truth and implications of the scriptures themselves? And so we're really trying to answer a couple questions. Like, is the Bible true? Is it reliable? Is it, is it factual? Is it historical or not? And so we want this, this series to help illustrate one really important thing for us. We want the church to be the people that are most open to conversation and dialogue and even disagreement. And when it's not, when we're not willing to have conversation or to wrestle through tough issues, 
then we don't look much like Jesus who we claim to follow. So I was thinking about how, does it, how do we go about this? And maybe, maybe you've seen, um, some of you have ever looked up like an original Greek manuscript of the Bible. The whole New Testament is written in, in Greek, uh, other than like a really small percentage, but, but it was written in Greek. And so I, I remember being in school and I looked at the Greek New Testament and I had, I had a couple different versions. I had one that, that had all the chapters and verses and all the punctuation. And then I had another one I looked at and it really wasn't that helpful to me, if I'm honest. Um, it's what actual Greek looks like, actual ancient Greek. You've heard the phrase, it's Greek to me. This is why this phrase exists, because in the original Greek, there is zero punctuation, and there's no break between words. It's just letters and lines. It's confusing. Anyone who tells you otherwise, they're lying to you. Right? Like, I, it takes scholars to figure out what in the world is being said here. I mean, there's a reason why it, it takes lots of education to be able to translate the Bible, because it is hard to read. I took a year's worth of courses on just how to try to do that, and I still don't know what I'm doing, right? I mean, I'm probably more trouble than it's worth. So I just trust other people that they've done a really good job of that. So the question, like, we're left with, does that mean, like, biblical translations are wrong? It, it, if, if the original Greek is so hard to understand that we can't read it, because you can't, like, I'm just going to tell you, um, maybe one of you in this room, maybe, that's probably it. But, but outside of that, like, we can't do that. And so we have to trust that other scholars have done the work for us. But then the question is, if it's, how close is it to the ancient text? Is it accurate? Is it reliable? Is it trustworthy? Is it even true? And so there's a question that's being asked today. The question is not, is the Bible accurate? But is the Bible factual? Factual in regards to Jesus, factual in regards to the actual events. Is it real? doesn't matter. In fact, there's a whole bunch of questions that people ask about the Bible. I'm going to read them because I, I don't think I could remember them all. Is the Bible historically legitimate? Has it been proven false? Hasn't the Bible changed throughout history? Isn't there a long list of contradictions and mistakes in the Bible? Aren't the Gospels filled with legends that got worked in later? Isn't the Bible full of ancient and outdated moral teachings? Examples regarding stoning, chauvinism, etc. Isn't the Bible written by people who merely wanted power? Why does the church only include four Gospels and exclude others, such as the Gospel of Thomas? Um, if I was going to summarize these in a couple succinct questions, it would be this. Is the Bible reliable from its original writing? And is it historically accurate? That's it. I, I could summarize more. We could talk more. And there's more. If you want to have a longer conversation, that's why after the service, I'll hang out here for a minute or two and we can talk about it. Because um, it's a little more than you're going to get in about 25 to 30 minutes today. But as we begin to look at this, we, we begin to look at, well, how, how do we take it from the original language? So if we're going to talk about even the Old Testament. So if, if I was a, a Hebrew scholar and I was helping to translate the Old Testament or to keep writing it on, because much of what we talk about ancient documents were oral first. They were passed along verbally or memorized, and then scribes would write them down. So if I was a Jewish scribe, what would happen is I would be writing it down, and as I would come to places of finishing, I would have two people over my shoulders watching the whole time, by the way. And if I screwed up, if I made a mistake, all of the three of us would have to initial my mistake and say, okay, you can't count that in the future. So when they look at this, that's a mistake. We corrected because they, they didn't have erasers uh, and you couldn't hit delete. So you just, it, it was what it was. And so they would mark the correction and you move on. If you didn't mark the correction and if they didn't have three initials, they destroyed that copy because it was now invalid. It wasn't good enough. 
don't know about you, but when you handwrite stuff, and, you, and, and I mean, like, there's the handwriting, like, I write notes for myself that aren't meant for other people, and only I can read them. That's not the kind of writing they're doing here. They're doing the kind of writing that they hope everyone will be able to read. It's a significantly different approach. So you see, there have been so many discoveries of ancient texts from the past 2,000 years that we know with a pretty high level of certainty that the Bible you and I read is pretty close to the ancient scriptures written by the scribes of antiquity. Um, like that one, I think, is even on the screen. But I mean, sure, there may be small mistakes in translation. Remember I told you there's no punctuation, Right? No breaking words. We all know you move a comma here or there that it changes the meaning of a sentence. So you ask the question, well, how, how accurate is it? Well, the truth is in the whole New Testament, there are only two passages that are really kind of argued over at all that are more than a sentence long. Uh, there are two passages, one from Mark chapter 16, verses 19 and 20, and one from John chapter 7, verses 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. In those two sections, you'll notice probably in every Bible you ever look at, they have a little phrase that says this at the bottom. The earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. So in fact, the, the places where we have discrepancy, we just tell you up front, hey, we don't know. Like, we couldn't find these in the earliest writings. We find them kind of after that, and they kind of fit with the character and the nature of the whole text. But we can't tell you with certainty that these have always been around. So we're going to put a little apostrophe here, a little, little note that says, hey, this, you can maybe throw this out, but it's good stuff either way. I mean, that's really what it's doing today. Or maybe you say, well, don't, don't like the Gospels contradict themselves. I mean, don't they tell stories? And Jesus says something one way in this book and another way in another book. Well, yeah. And you go, see, it contradicts itself. Well, kind of, kind of, but not really. So here's an example. If, if I were to tell you a story right now, if I were to make up a story and ask you the question, what is the most important thing out of that story I just told you? And you were to write down one sentence or one phrase of the most important thing from that story, and the person next to you were to do the same thing, do you realize that many of you would write two different things? So over the course of Jesus' life and teaching, it's not surprising that people would record different stories of even the same events. In fact, we see things a little bit differently. So an example that might be helpful, so in Matthew 27 and in Acts 1, there's a story of Judas and he dies. So in Matthew, the story, Judas, Judas hangs himself, right? That's the story. In Acts chapter 1, the story is this, that Judas um, bought a field and he fell headlong and his like intestines exploded. Well, both could be true. It might just be the continuation of the one story. So if, what if Judas bought a field and he hung himself and then he either fell or someone cut him down and then when he fell, you get the picture. It doesn't mean it's untrue. And maybe this is helpful. There's a movie that came out a few years ago called Vantage Point. Maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't. But it was the assassination, I think, of a president. I don't remember now. Um, but in this movie... It showed the same thing over and over again from literally seven different people's perspective. So it showed the perspective from the person like next to the president, then it showed it from the Secret Service, then it showed it from people who were actually executing, then it showed it from the news station. I mean, it showed the same story from all different angles. And you know what? Each one of those stories almost left you asking the question, did I see this differently than I did before? Same story, different vantage point. Hence the name of the movie. But what if, what if it was this, that often we don't see contradictions, but different perspectives or different angles from which to tell the story? What if the gospel's writer's intention was to tell you the perspective from which they saw? 
What if it wasn't to say, like, that's untrue and I'm the true one, but, but in other words, it's to tell two sides of the same story. And what if we look at the Old Testament, we begin to say, well, what about all those laws like in Leviticus? I mean, it says you can't have earrings or tattoos, or it says, you know, you can't eat this or you can't eat that. Like, how much of that do we have to live with today? Great question. Um, but not that great a question all at the same time, right? What if we begin to find that the Old Testament, what it does throughout is points forward? What if it points forward towards Jesus? And what if the whole point of the Old Testament is to tell us a story of a unique people at a unique time in history to point us to a particular place in time? And those were for a specific people, the nation of Israel, and maybe they don't transcend time. In fact, I would say it this way, the Old Testament is often a recording of what people did as much as it is giving God's affirmation. In fact, we see Jesus come and he begins to say, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He takes some of our understanding of the way things were written and says, well, yeah, this isn't really the character and nature of God. It was written down, but this is not who God is. It was an interpretation, an understanding, but it isn't the right one. It doesn't make it less true. It's just the affirmation of God. And so here's what I mean by the idea we begin to see things differently. So you'll notice there are all kinds of stories in the Old Testament about people having multiple wives. Do you notice in none of those stories does God say, hey, this is a really good thing? In fact, what you'll see in every one of those stories is something really dumb happens. So what happens. It's the recording of a history, not a good idea. Most of us who are married to one person realize that's plenty, right? I mean, like, this is a bad idea. It's not going to end well. I really do love my wife, in case you took that some other way. I want to be clear, like, that's not where I was going. But what we begin to see is our understanding of God grows. So you see in Acts chapter 10, there's this picture of Peter. And Peter is, is having this kind of vision. He's dreaming, he's asleep, and he's hungry. And, and in this dream, the sheets lower down, and there's all these animals, and this voice says, take, kill, and eat. And he goes, oh no, I've never eaten anything unclean. And Jesus says again, Peter, will you just eat something? Like all these animals are here for you. And he goes, don't you get it, Lord? I've never let anything unclean touch my lips. And then these words are this. Don't call anything I've created unclean. If I'm really creator of all, it's all good. And so our understanding shifts and grows. It is the progressive understanding of the nature and character of God, which is what Jesus comes to help us see. In fact, Mark Clark says it this way. He says, you can't understand the Bible without understanding it as a story that progresses with Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and the transition to the era of the new covenant, which includes all ethnicities, a transitional movement, not a geographic or localized one. An important shift took place. And by implication, there are rules in the Old Testament given for a specific period and purpose and people that no longer apply in the New Testament era Christians no longer live under the rules of the kingdom of Israel, but under the rule of Jesus Christ and his new kingdom. This is why I said Jesus will often be quoted as saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. This is why. Because sometimes we record things about who we think God is. In fact, if I were to say, for many of you who are followers of Jesus, if we went back to when you first became a follower of Jesus and you were to write down and articulate who you believe God to be and were to have you do it again today, I'm willing to bet you they are two different things. It's true in my life. I'm guessing it's probably true in yours. But we still have this question, is the Bible historically accurate? 
I mean, is it really one of the most reliable and credible ancient documents from antiquity? Is that really true or not? And so I want to read just a brief excerpt from a book. And here's what Mark Clark writes. When trying to deduce whether an ancient document can be trusted, scholars must consider a number of factors. One of those is the number of manuscripts available of a particular document because the more manuscripts there are, the more it can be compared and contrasted for possible contradictions, mistakes, and or inconsistencies. In other words, the more the better. Scholars point out that if we compare the number of New Testament manuscripts to other writings in antiquity that are accepted as accurate, we find that it is the most trustworthy set of documents in the entire ancient world. For instance, Thucydides lived from 460 to 365 BC and wrote extensively about Greco-Roman culture. Most scholars trust what Thucydides reported in his writings as historically accurate. We have an existence of eight copies of his writings, the earliest transcribed 1,300 years after the events of which he wrote. There are five copies of Aristotle's Poetics dated 1,400 years after the originals. Caesar's Gallic Wars describe events that occurred in 58 BC, and the few manuscripts scholars have are from 1,000 years after his death. There are two ancient biographies of Alexander the Great that are seen as authoritative and fully accurate, the earliest of which was written 400 years after Alexander died. Historians trust all these writings as historically accurate. So what about the New Testament? Believe it or not, there are over 25,000 copies of the New Testament documents in existence. It's the greatest number of manuscripts by far of any writing of its kind from the ancient world. Um, now, that doesn't mean you have to believe they're true, but you can believe they're historically accurate and reliable. Believing the Bible to be true still takes a leap of faith. I don't even want to try to dissuade you that it's otherwise. Like, that is the reality for us. But if I was trying to convince you of something... If I was trying to convince you to believe a particular story about a particular time, about a particular person, I probably wouldn't tell you the story of Jesus. In fact, I probably wouldn't give you any names, like many of the gospel writers will give you names, like go to see so-and-so's kids, the sons of Rufus or whoever. I mean, there are all kinds of times where the Bible tells us, why would I ever give you the names of actual people that you could try to verify what I said was true? I wouldn't do that. It doesn't make any sense. Unless I was wanting you to try to verify with these people that these stories actually happened. I mean, if I was writing a story to, to persuade you, I wouldn't tell you the story of a hero that dies on a cross. I mean, I wouldn't tell you the story of, a fa- of, a, of the same hero who says, my father betrayed me. I wouldn't tell you the story that, I wanted to say that when you ask him questions and this is supposed to be the God man, that he could say, well, I don't know, only the father knows. I'd pick a different story. Or maybe these words of Timothy Keller will be helpful. As Keller says, in Mark 14, we see the supposed God-man sitting in a garden, sweating blood because of anxiety and fear. Afraid, he cries out to God, asking that the mission of suffering be taken away from him. This is not something you put in a story you're making up if you want Jesus to be the perfect hero because it shows weakness and doubt. Make a look at Peter, and we talk about Peter as the early church leader. The dude was a wreck. Read the stories for just a few minutes and you'll see he's not worth following, yet we told people to follow him anyway. And what about the Bible and outdated teaching on women? All right, what, if, what if what we begin to recognize is it's Jesus himself who begins for the first time in history to validate women? It's Paul who writes that 
neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew or Gentile, all are equal in the eyes of God. I mean, this is revolutionary thinking at a time in history when people didn't value even women. Like, this is what changed the perspective of all people. I wouldn't write that in that day. If I wanted you to believe in Jesus, I wouldn't, tell you, I wouldn't use women as my argument for why you should listen. I wouldn't tell you that it was women that would pass along the story of the resurrected Jesus. I wouldn't tell you that because that would be a really bad idea if it wasn't true. But what if, what if the more we find, the more we search, the more it validates the truth and accuracy of Scripture? What if, as Nelson Gluck, a renowned Jewish archaeologist, has said, it would be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference? This is a Jewish scholar who says that nothing is contradicted. Now, you can find stuff, and there's things we don't have answers for, absolutely. But there's been no categorical proof to dissuade us from anything. Unless you think it's just a, a kind of a biblical perspective, maybe you've heard of someone named Anne Rice. Anne Rice is an author, and maybe, maybe some of you, you don't have to answer if you have, but maybe you've seen a movie based on one of her books, Diary of a Vampire. Um, Maybe you've read some of the books, the horror erotica genre in which she wrote. She grew up a Roman Catholic, but, but in the middle of her life, she ran from faith and she had nothing to do with it. And so she, she married a guy who was an atheist. She herself claimed to be an atheist. But over time, she began to wrestle with, do I believe this stuff to be true or not? And so she began to study the validity of scriptures and whether the dismissal of scriptures. And what she found as she looked at all kinds of esteemed academic institutions was that the premise, the main argument for the against the Bible, um, his historic reliability wasn't that good. In fact, she writes this um, in the afterword of one of her novels, Christ the Lord out of Egypt. She writes these words. Some books were no more than assumptions piled on assumptions. Conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified that whole picture which had floated around in liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I've ever read. Um, so what else can we learn? I mean, the timing makes it unlikely they're legends because it's written too close after the events themselves. It's these words of Keller that might be helpful for a highly altered, fictionalized account of an event to take hold in the public imagination, it's necessary that the eyewitnesses and their children and grandchildren all be long dead. They must be off the scene so they cannot contradict or debunk the embellishments and falsehoods of the story. The Gospels were written far too soon for this to occur. Maybe you know the story of C.S. Lewis, the acclaimed author and scholar and literary critic, and he writes these words when he was talking about whether the Gospels could be legend or not themselves. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this Gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer without Known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. In other words, this person wrote the way we read fiction today 2,000 years ago, 1,700 years ago, in a way that no one's ever done before, and no one did until about 300 years ago. Like, that doesn't really make that much sense. But if, 
If at the end we don't like what the Bible says, that's reasonable. You could not like it. If at the end we're not sure we want to believe it, that's okay. That's understandable. But at the end, if we're left with this question, if there is a God, and if this makes sense, if God exists, I probably not going to agree with everything God says anyway, right? If there's a God who's not me, I probably will find disagreement. doesn't mean I'm right. In fact, one of the things that Christians begin to think through is how we actually read the Bible. Like, I, I actually, if I was to, to really just spend time talking to people who already believe this is one of the areas I would spend a ton of time. Um, the Bible should be read in a Christocentric reading, a Christ-centered way. So what I mean by this is in light of the light and life and character of Jesus, we should read the Bible in light of him. I know I butchered whatever I wrote, but that's Okay. So here's what I'd say. So we don't read the Bible like as a book that you pick up and you read from beginning to end because then it's not going to make a lot of sense if I'm really honest. Now, there are people who come to faith that way, which blows my mind. I think that's by the work of God in some way. Um, But the Bible is better read if we look at the Gospels themselves and we begin to understand the character and nature of Jesus and then we read the rest of the Bible in light of Jesus. Then it begins to make sense. Then we begin to see that it points forward in some ways that we kind of get it. And so what I mean is maybe you're like me and you sometimes go, I just don't get it. Like you're not alone in that. There's a passage from Luke's gospel and a read from chapter 24. Luke, um, Luke's recording the kind of the, the resurrection of Jesus. And so he writes these words from Luke chapter 24, verse 25 to 27. He's talking about Jesus. Uh, Jesus says these words. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things, then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, they all knew the Bible. Like, they all knew their scriptures. But they didn't know them. Like, they'd read them, they'd heard the stories, but they didn't really get it. Right? They didn't realize that all the Old Testament scriptures kept pointing forward to this idea that there would be one who would come and he'd be God in flesh, and he'd have to suffer and die, and he'd come back to life to offer new life for God's people. And so Jesus begins to describe to them, hey, here is the scriptures that you didn't get. And so in this moment, they are the first skeptics we read about in the Bible in terms of the scriptures. And then once they begin to understand, they go, oh, I get it. We're in. Let's do this. But I think for many of us, we sometimes miss the kind of the heart of the Bible in and of itself. So I'll say this to say, uh, at some level, you can choose to not believe it, but it's not because it's unreliable or not historically held true. The whole story of the Bible from beginning to end is this. It's a story of a wayward people who wander around and a God who lovingly and longingly pursues them. It's the story of the Bible. That's it right there. And here's the incredible thing about God. God still lovingly and longingly pursues us. And so the point of the Bible is to point us to that. To point us to the very character and nature of God. To point us forward in such a way that we begin to know who he is and what he's about. And so the good news is that it's not about us. It's about what we can do so that God will will save us. It's not about that. It's what God has already done. Because maybe you're like me. You read the Bible as a kid and you begin to think that, oh man, it's just a list of rules. And if I don't keep this list of rules, I'm in trouble. It's not the goal of the scriptures. It's true that when we read it from that way, it really is all about us. It's about me and about my own desires and my own needs. And it misses the idea that it's about this nature of a people pursuing this together in relationship out of a place of a loving God. And so what if, 
What if, no, it's not the hero you would write, right? If I was going to write a hero of a story, it wouldn't be Jesus. It'd be like The Rock. It'd be some huge jack guy who you'd be like, man, like, I, like he looks like a hero, right? I mean, it's who you'd pick. You wouldn't pick a guy who's naked and hung on a cross because that's not the kind of hero that we want to follow. But it's probably the hero we need. In fact, I would argue it's the hero that God invites us to know in such a way because it's this idea that that Jesus didn't choose to retaliate. He chose love, and through that love, it was a radical change of the world. In fact, he invites us to know him in such a way. And this loving God who pursues the world through Jesus is found in the scriptures. And the good news for you and I today is this. The same God is pursuing you and I today. It's the good news for us. Same God is pursuing you and I today. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and the praise team's going to come and sing in Christ alone one more time. And it's this opportunity, this invitation to recognize that it is our hope in Him alone. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, for the way in which you come near to us, for the way in which you love us, and the way in which you desperately desire for us to know you. So even we we read the Bible, you don't want us to read it as just some textbook or just a historical document or just things passed on from antiquity and we know we didn't address every kind of issue that there is or every kind of conversation that we could have but what if what if somehow in the middle of all of this the Bible is true then there is a God who lovingly and longingly pursues us and we see the fullness of that love in Jesus the fullness of that love that invites us to know you in such a way that it redeems us and restores us, the fullness of God in such a way that we begin to recognize that you come near to us. So Father, this morning as we pray and as we sing one last song, may we recognize that the hope of the Bible isn't just that we read about an ancient people, but the hope of the Bible is that we would know the God that the ancient people knew. Same God seen in the person of Jesus that was defined by sacrificial, selfless love. In many ways, he's the anti-hero of any story we would write today, but he's the hero that we need. And so, Father, we hope that the Bible won't be a problem for us or a problem that keeps us from you. It will be one more signpost that helps us know your love in a way that changes our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still. When striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Light of the world by dark 
Just love of Christ. 